Hey Skeptics, it's Juliana here. Just a word of warning before we start this podcast. Today's episode discusses aspects of the White Australia policy and systematic and legal racism, which may be distressing and offensive for some listeners. Please proceed with caution and know that these views are not reflective of my own. October 1936, a woman named Mabel Frere attempted to enter Australia. She was a British Indian woman who had been born in modern-day Pakistan to a British Army officer father and his Anglo-Irish wife. Freer was white, spoke English with an aristocratic accent to boot, and had been educated in London. She was just the type of immigrant Australia was supposedly trying to attract under the White Australia policy. But as soon as the ship that she was on arrived in Fremantle, immigration officials boarded and gave her a dictation test in Italian, which, of course, she failed. She was declared a prohibited immigrant and was not permitted to disembark in Australia. Instead, she went to New Zealand, where she engaged legal counsel to challenge the Australian government's decision. But what on earth was going on? The papers were as bewildered as everyone else and headlines appeared almost instantly, informing readers that a white British woman from the lower rungs of the aristocracy, no less, had been refused entry to Australia. Alarm started to spread among the many white British women already residing in Australia and the feminist movement latched onto it. Why was the Australian government using the white Australia policy and the dictation test to exclude the very people it was supposed to be encouraging. Were other white women in Australia at risk of deportation? So as the clamour got louder, the government moved to reassure everyone that there was no danger. Freya, they said, was an immoral woman, and they'd received information from the Indian and British governments warning of her bad character. That was why they'd kept her out of the country. Now, if the politicians hoped this would calm the masses, it had the opposite effect. Much like with Kish, racism played a large part in the outrage, although in Freer's case, classism was also present. People were incensed that the government would suggest that a well-born white woman could be so immoral that she needed to be excluded from Australia. But the government refused to release any more information and wild rumours started to circulate. Then, Freya herself made a stunning revelation to a journalist in New Zealand. She speculated that the reason she'd been excluded from Australia was because she intended to marry her travelling companion, Australian Army Staff Lieutenant Edward Dewar, who was married to, but seeking divorce from, an Australian woman. Freya herself was a divorcee, and this information sent the press into a frenzy as they tried to find out whether being a divorcee and wanting to marry a man in the process of getting a divorce was all it took to keep someone out of Australia. What they found instead was a sensational tale that just reeked of sexism, not to mention government interference in private relationships. This is Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis.
Hello again, my fellow skeptics, and thank you so much for joining me. As always, I would like to open today's show by acknowledging that I am podcasting on the lands of the Wurundjeri Watharong people. I recognise their history making on the land we now call Australia and their continuous connection to country, which they have protected and maintained for more than 65,000 years. Last episode, as many of you will recall, we talked about Egon Kish, a communist activist who the Australian government tried to exclude using the White Australia policy and the dictation test. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you go and do so because I'm not going to go into details of the White Australia policy here. Instead, I want to focus on the story of Mabel Frere. So if you haven't listened to Dictationship, Egon Kish and the White Australia policy, Pause this episode here and go and have a listen. I'll be waiting when you get back. For those still with me, we are going to dive right into the tale of Mabel Freer and undercover what it was that saw her refused entry into this country. Her saga unfolded in 1936, just over 12 months after Kish left, actually. So the Australian government really should have known better and considered the consequences if they were caught misusing the Immigration Restriction Act yet again. As we will see, they either believed the public would be firmly on their side or they didn't care for public opinion whatsoever. If it was the first case, they were wrong. And if it was the second, they were stupid. Politicians in a democracy don't last long if they ignore public opinion. Freer had met Dewar in India where he was on secondment to the British Indian Army. Dewar was married, but Freer was in the process of legally divorcing her first husband, Ronald Freer, with whom she'd had two daughters. She'd been in England with her daughters and had initiated divorce proceedings against her husband on her return to India prior to beginning her relationship with Dewar. Ronald Freer was embarrassed by the divorce action and initially tried to stop proceedings, And Mabel Freer unfortunately handed him a weapon when she began her relationship with Dewar. Because once that happened, Freer realised he was never going to get away from the divorce, so decided to go along with it. But under Indian law at the time, it was illegal for a man to seduce another man's wife and cause her to file for divorce. Ronald Freer, therefore, named Dewar as a party to the divorce proceedings, claiming he had seduced Mabel and that was why she had filed. This was absurd as Mabel Freer had initiated divorce proceedings before she even met Dewar, but it helped Ronald Freer save face. Or so he thought, at least. The Australian Army got wind of what was happening and advised Dewar to get on the next steamship home as the action would be embarrassing for him and could derail his career as a staff officer. Dewar was facing the possibility of a large fine and up to two years imprisonment if he was found to have been the cause of Mabel Freer filing for divorce and so he took the Army's advice. To be honest, I think I would too. Unknown to the army, however, at least initially, was that he took Mabel Freer with him and that the pair were planning to settle in Australia and marry once they arrived. Dewar wrote to his Australian wife just before he left India, stating his intention to get a divorce so that he could marry Freer. The records are silent on whether Freer's children accompanied her or not, but There is some evidence she may have sent them to schools in England, possibly to shield them from the coming scandal of the divorce with their father. 
She got her wished for divorce from Ronald Frere, although unfortunately things didn't really turn out as she might have hoped. As she and Dewar were steaming towards Australia, probably happily planning their life together, the army realised what had happened and swung into action. In their eyes, Mabel Frere was a scandal that could not be tolerated and they spoke directly to the Interior Minister, Thomas Patterson, insisting that she be refused entry. They also wrote directly to Dewar, demanding he drop Freer immediately and go back to his wife and baby daughter. Dewar was rather indignant that his employer was interfering in his private relationships and the army suffered considerable embarrassment later in the scandal when he revealed this to the press, although they refused to apologise. I want to note here that I don't condone Dewar at all for starting a relationship with another woman prior to separating from his wife, but I also don't agree with the position taken by the army, one, that they had any right to interfere in his relationship, or two, that the whole thing was Freer's fault and that Freer was the problem. If a person is married or in a relationship with another person, it is their responsibility not to start new relationships until ending their previous one. Women are not the gatekeepers of other men's marriages. Although, having said that, I don't condone knowingly having an affair with a married person either, but it wasn't Freer's role to save Dewar's marriage. That was entirely up to him and he didn't want to. He wanted a new relationship. He wanted to move on. Someone who has been married for more than 35 years recently said to me that a good marriage is a lot of luck. If the person you love stops loving you or you stop loving them, there's not a lot you can do. This seems to have happened in the Dewar's case. After Freer was excluded from Australia for the first time and went to New Zealand, more sordid details of the whole affair began to emerge. Patterson claimed, that is the Interior Minister, that his decision to refuse her entry into the country was because of his sense of family morals. Freer was an adventuress who had no compassion for a wife and child whose domestic world is falling around their ears, he said. The wife and child he was referencing were Dewar's wife and child, although there's actually little evidence that Mrs. Dewar's domestic world was falling around her ears. Certainly in the early days, she was very upset that her husband was leaving her and had taken their young baby and moved back in with her parents. But she also very quickly made it clear in multiple newspapers that she didn't want to be married to him anymore and if he wanted to leave her, he was welcome to. As the saga dragged on, her attacks on her ex-husband became more vicious and it was later revealed that her parents and Dewar's parents had actually been behind much of the stalling over the divorce. Her parents claimed they'd wanted to save her the shame of being a divorced woman, so had applied pressure to Patterson, who they saw was on their side, to try and break up the relationship between Freer and Dewar in the hope that Dewar would come back and try and mend the marriage. While Dewar's father had felt that Freer would ruin his son's career and had also appealed to Patterson and the army to keep Freer out of the country. Both sides hoped that by getting rid of Freer, they would get rid of the problem. Now, it didn't quite turn out like that. Sit tight through this break and I'll tell you what did happen when the media continued to dig. 
And we are back, sceptics. Now, by this stage, Thomas Patterson and the Australian government, still led by arch-conservative Joseph Lyons, who was mentioned last episode, were starting to get worried. The Freer scandal was causing a whole lot of bad publicity they really didn't need or want, and if they thought that public opinion would have been on their side, then they'd already been proved wrong. People were in that the government was misusing the Immigration Restriction Act again so soon after the Kish affair. And feminist groups and women's rights movements were also furious that Freer was being held solely responsible for the breakdown of Edward Dewar's marriage. Even a conservative women's group, the United Australia Party's women's group, which was usually supportive of the government in matters like this, wrote saying that the whole affair was unseemly and that Freya should be let into the country to be able to marry Dewar. Other groups pointed out that it was Dewar who had chosen to have an affair. And while it was wrong for Freya to have begun a relationship with a married man, she was not responsible for Dewar's marital breakdown. Indeed, it quickly becomes apparent in the papers that both Dewar and his wife thoroughly disliked each other and I can't help but wonder if they married possibly because she was pregnant and perhaps then discovered they had very little in common. It might also explain why Dewar had requested a long secondment to the British Indian Army. Not only would it have helped his career, it would have given him space away from what may have been a very unhappy marriage. But the women's rights groups were correct in saying that he was responsible for having an affair, not Freer. This view was also popular with the Australian public and that seems to have surprised the government. So they began looking for a new angle with which to attack. Using parliamentary privilege, which allows members of parliament to say things without being sued or held criminally responsible... Thomas Patterson again claimed that he'd received information from the British and Indian governments about Freer's dubious moral character. He hinted that this went beyond simply being a divorcee and having an affair with a married man, but affected a chivalrous attitude and said he didn't want to further disgrace the lady's character by revealing her true nature in Parliament. The press, still circling, began leaning on their contacts and it wasn't long before the government was leaking like a sieve. Patterson was not completely alone in wanting to exclude Freer indefinitely, but he was in a minority and most parliamentarians in government and opposition thought he was doing more damage by keeping her out than he would by letting her in. They drew not unreasonable parallels with the Kish affair, pointing out that Kish had been a relatively unknown entity in Australia until the government had tried to exclude him the previous year, after which he'd become a national celebrity. The same thing could happen if Mrs Freer continued to be excluded, especially once it became clear that neither of the Dewars were interested in repairing their marriage and that they were moving ahead with divorce proceedings. Then, to Patterson's horror... The Daily Telegraph, a London-based newspaper, revealed that Patterson had only started requesting information from the Indian authorities after he had excluded Freer the first time because the Australian public and Parliament were not satisfied with his defence that she was of immoral character. 
Following on from this, other papers then revealed the contents of a government document that Patterson had compiled using information from India and revealed sensational claims he was using to exclude Freer. I'll read and debunk them in a moment. The press was also able to find out where this information had come from. Patterson had been sent a letter by a woman who claimed to have known Freer in India. The woman said that Mabel Freer had gone by the name Vera when she'd lived in India and had frequented pubs and bars, implying that she was a sex worker. Another person who provided information to the government was someone called Mr Hunt. Hunt lived in Sydney but had previously lived in India and also claimed to have known Vera Freer. Suspiciously, he told Patterson everything Patterson could have ever wanted to know about this mysterious Vera Freer and had the Daily Telegraph not revealed his actions, which caused both sensation and public outrage across the British Empire, he might very well have been able to use that information to justify excluding Freer. Although once it had been published by the paper, who then put their own spin on it and revealed something about his informants, he had no chance. There were 15 points in the cable and I'm going to read them now and debunk them as I go. Then I'm going to take a break and when we return, we'll look at why this cable was so embarrassing for the Australian government. Information in the possession of the Department of the Interior of Australia. 1. Name. Mabel Magdalene Freer. Said to be identical with Vera Freer. So the first part of this point is true, but there's no evidence that Freer ever used the alias Vera. It's either a fiction or this is someone else entirely. 2. Said to be divorced. Came to Lahore in May 1936. Mabel Freer had begun divorce proceedings against Ronald Freer in May 1946 and she was divorced by the time she arrived in Australia. So on the surface, this point is true. 3. Lived by her wits and gave herself to the highest bidder. This point is attempting to imply that Freer was a sex worker. Employment in the sex industry at the time was commonly used to demean a woman's character, but there's no evidence Freer ever participated in sex work. During her life in India, she lived with her parents or her first husband and had private wealth to draw on, so wouldn't have needed to enter the sex industry at all. Four. Her one idea is to find someone to pay her expenses. This is false, again implying she's a sex worker and trying to demean her. Freya was both an aristocrat and an independently wealthy woman with good connections. If she was running short of funds, there were plenty of people she could turn to whom she would not need to offer anything but a thank you note. 5. Inquiries should be made into her parentage and mode of living. Again, the government is trying to claim she's a sex worker. As for inquiries about her parentage, the implication here is that she is biracial, something that was considered scandalous at the time, and illegitimate. She was neither, actually. Her father was English, her mother Anglo-Irish, and they'd been married at the time of her birth. 6. She only married her first husband to get a father for her child. That was when she was in Whiteway, Ladlow, Bombay. This is just, it's rubbish. Freya married Ronald when she was 18, and their first child, a daughter, was born more than a year after their wedding. 7. Don't think she and her parents have seen any country other than India. Again, completely false. As mentioned above, both of Freya's parents had not grown up in India and they were well connected to British high society. 
Freya herself had done some of her schooling in England and had visited family there with her daughters shortly before she divorced her first husband. Eight, said to be known in Bangalore as Vera Frere, where she lived in Infantry Road in 1931 to 1932. Now, Infantry Road, as the name implies, was where most of the British Army barracks were situated. Again, the implication here is that Freer was a sex worker, or at the very least, that she had illicit relationships with soldiers. This was considered deeply immoral behaviour at the time. Nine. At this time, 1931 to 32, had a small son of two and a half to three years of age who showed undoubted indications of black blood. Now, Freya never had a son. She had two legitimate daughters to her first husband, who was a white man, and there's no evidence that she ever had a biracial child. Not that there's anything wrong with biracial children, by the way, but if we look at the attitudes of the time, we can see how some of these accusations could be quite damning. 10. She is said to be half Sinhalese. Now, Freya's parents, as mentioned above, were English and Anglo-Irish, and she never lived in modern-day Sri Lanka, which the people there were described as being Sinhalese at the time. 11. She stated at the time, 1931 to 32, that she was divorced from Freya, but was married at the time to an Armenian who was in Iraq and was the father of her child. She did not use the name of the Armenian. Now, this is just laughably ridiculous. Again, Freya did not have a son. That is the fictitious child mentioned here. And this is the only mention anywhere in the records of a second lover. To make it even more silly, Freya was in India at this time and embarking on her relationship with Dewar. 12. Was constantly in the company of an Indian named Bangaji, said to be a civil servant of state of Hadabad spending his leave in Bangalore. This is probably complete fiction, although it may have a grain of truth. Freer's father was a high-ranking army officer and may have had dealings with Indian civil servants, but the phrase constantly in the company of is meant to imply that she had a sexual relationship with this man. White women were not forbidden from having relationships with Indians at this time, but it was seen as deeply scandalous and, again, this is an attempt to demean Freya's character. 13. Said to have been the cause of the disgrace and expulsion from India of a young English member of a Calcutta mercantile firm. This is the only reference I can find to this mysterious young Englishman. Again, it's either fictional or it refers to someone else. 14. Although a Eurasian, she has always said she was pure English. Freya was not Eurasian and by the standards of her day, she was English. And finally, 15, she is a cunning and utterly immoral woman. She is little better, if at all, than a common prostitute. This summary is much like the rest of the cable, to be honest, completely full of shit. And hello again, sceptics. Now, while all these aspersions were being cast on her character, and the Australian government and the Australian army continued to try and insert themselves into her relationship with Dewar, Freer had engaged a lawyer to challenge her exclusion from Australia. The lawyer played not only to the public indignation but also to their fear, saying that using a dictation test to exclude a British woman like Freer was a blatant misuse of the Immigration Restriction Act, which was true, and that if the Australian government was allowed to get away with it, 
all British women in Australia could be called up at any moment by the immigration department and ordered to take the dictation test. Technically true, but very unlikely. The government denied it had any interest in excluding British women just so long as they were of moral character. But the papers ran with the sensational story and the letters to the editor pages of most major newspapers began to be filled with letters, usually from angry husbands and fathers, questioning whether or not their wives, daughters and daughters-in-law were safe from deportation. It was a hard blow for the government, but certainly not a knockout punch. Another hard punch came when the contents of the government cable was we read before the break were published. The press found the accusations laughable and their own investigations showed that the woman who had written the letter to Patterson hadn't heard of Mabel Freer until the Indian newspapers sensationally reported that her first husband was blaming an Australian Army staff officer for stealing her away from him. So either this woman was a fantasist or she was mixing up Freer with someone else. I'm inclined to believe it was the former and that whoever this gossip mongerer was, she was merely seeking her own 15 minutes of fame. To make matters worse, the mysterious Mr Hunt from Sydney, who claimed he'd known Freer in India, turned out to be a convicted con man who had never been to India before, and the government had failed to pick this up before using his information to help write that cable. Now, this blow hit harder than Freer's ongoing legal action, and the public began to call for Patterson's resignation. Around the same time, Freer again attempted to enter Australia on the advice of her legal team and was again given a dictation test in Italian. The tester had not even finished reading the passage, which was a weather report, when an immigration official told Freer she'd failed, indicating that the test had been a farce. The newspapers published this too, much to the disquiet of Patterson, and the calls for him to resign grew louder. Freer went back to New Zealand and engaged new legal counsel, who played hardball with the Australian government. Her new lawyer corresponded directly with then-Attorney-General Robert Menzies, who later became Australia's longest-serving Prime Minister. Menzies was in favour of admitting Freer and advised Patterson to do so, but Patterson resisted, telling Menzies that the scandal would eventually blow over and then, then calls started coming in thick and fast for a public inquiry into Patterson's decision. It was getting more and more publicity and people were getting more and more alarmed by the fact that the government was not doing its job as they saw it. They had no issue with the white Australia policy and no issue with the dictation test, as long as they were being used properly. Patterson was not using them properly and people wanted to know why. They had no more patience with the claims that Freer was an immoral woman. From Patterson's perspective, things were getting out of hand and then came the official news that the Dewars were officially divorcing and the fig leaf of family values fell away from Patterson's justification. In response, he told a newspaper that there was no need for a public inquiry, read, I don't want my decisions examined, and privately confided to friends that he was sure it would all die down soon. I wonder if he really believed this or if it was just wishful thinking. The knockout blow, as it happened, was eventually delivered by Freya herself. 
When it became clear that Patterson was not going to back down and that Robert Menzies, who claimed later that he had been acting against his better judgment and had been trying to keep his party together, was supporting Patterson, Freer issued a threat through her lawyer. If the Australian government did not reverse its decision and let her into the country, she was going to release all the letters she had to the press, including private correspondence between Dewar and his father and Dewar's father and her, where the man had offered to pay for her passage back to India if she left his son. This would indicate the level of interference a private family had had in what was supposed to be a government matter. The government held out for a few more weeks, but they did eventually relent. The threat of publication, and some of those letters were later published actually, did play a part in their decision, but there was another aspect too. They had been defeated in a by-election by a Labor candidate, and that candidate had used the Freer scandal to suggest that the government was completely incompetent and that people could expect them to start interfering in the miniature of their lives if they elected the government-backed man. Surrendering to what must have felt inevitable at that point, the government relented, and Freer was permitted to land in Sydney on the 12th of July, 1937. She arrived to a hero's welcome. Sadly, her relationship with Dewar did not survive the pressure put on them by the Australian government. Shortly before the announcement that she would be permitted to land in Australia, Dewar was suddenly transferred by the army from Sydney to Perth and he and Freer made the decision to end their relationship. Both had contemplated suicide over the four-month ordeal and each wanted to move on and have a much quieter life. There is evidence that they continued to correspond for some years and maintained a friendship with Dewar even attending Freer's wedding to John Cusack, a fish merchant, in Sydney in 1938. Subsequently, both Dewar and Freer faded from the public interest. For the government, the Freer scandal was a catastrophe. Labor held them up to be utterly incompetent and said that the Kitsch and Freer cases showed they were willing to willfully abuse the Immigration Restriction Act. Their interference in what most people saw as a private relationship further soured their appeal to the public. They survived an election in 1937 by the skin of their teeth and Patterson, utterly disgraced, had to resign shortly after. There is speculation, it's never been proven, although I've seen it in a few of the documents I've looked at, that he was visited by colleagues after the election who told him if he didn't jump, they would push him. The Freer case is the last documented time the government attempted to use, or I should say misuse, the Immigration Restriction Act prior to the Second World War, but I have no doubt they continued to do so. They'd use the dictation test to their advantage whenever it suited them. But unlike Mrs Freer, who had access to large amounts of money, who had class, who had white privilege, social privilege, all these things that allowed her to challenge her ban and keep the papers interested... Most people who fell on the wrong side of the dictation test did not have that ability. Today, the general view is that Patterson's decision to exclude Freer was down to sexism. He saw her as a quote-unquote bad woman who would poison white Australia's good, docile domestic homemakers and threaten the wholesome institution of marriage. 
Freya was a woman who acted in her own best interests, who pursued love at a time when women were supposed to be passive and was prepared to start a new life with the man she loved on the other side of the world. To Patterson and other men like him, this was a horrifying prospect. An independent, self-assured woman. I admit I actually really admire Mabel Freer and I think the greatest tragedy of this story is that she and Dewa never got to have the life they'd planned together. We'll never know what might have happened had the government and the army, along with Dewa's family and his in-laws, hadn't decided to interfere in what was a private consensual relationship between two adults, but it does illustrate not only the racism underlying the dictation test itself, but how the Immigration Restriction Act was also used in to try and socially engineer Australian society well beyond the ickiness of white Australia. Kish had been excluded, or attempted to be excluded, because he was a political radical. But Freya had been a woman who refused to play by the patriarchy's rules. The Australian government, however, had severely underestimated her, both her determination and the public's desire for their laws to be used appropriately. That's really the crux of the matter at the time. The government's own racism came back to haunt them as the public demanded they allow a white British woman into Australia. That the politicians saw her as a threat to their masculinity was not an idea the people had any sympathy with whatsoever. And that's it from me today. Thank you so much for listening to The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis. New episodes are released every second Tuesday and available wherever you get your favourite shows. If you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or get in touch on social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. And make sure you join me next episode for another sceptical take on the mystery that is history. Bye now. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in my research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound, used under the appropriate licence. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used appropriately. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, skeptics.